Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You all looked at the door, and that means you had reasonable doubt, and that means they hadn't, haven't proven their case, and you should find my client not guilty. Jury was out for 10 minutes, came back with a guilty verdict. So the lawyer went up to the jury afterwards and he said, wait, I don't understand. He said, you, you all looked at the door. How could you find him guilty? And they said, uh, well, Mr. Attorney, we all did look at the door, but we also looked at your client and he wasn't looking at the door. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. This is our, I don't, I don't know if we're going to give people a peek behind the curtain, but we're recording on Black Friday. This is our right. Black Friday yeah. episode. In, <laughs> instead of, instead of out fighting the crowds and, uh, and, and trying to get that, that, uh, flat screen TV that I've had my eye on, I'm, uh, I'm here with you guys and we're, uh, and we're doing a podcast. Yeah. Although speak for yourself because I had to get up at 5 AM to drive from Tennessee. Um, so I could be back here to work for trial, but so it was fine until the very end as I got a little bit close to Atlanta. I feel like I was, I was driving with people who were out picking up TVs and, uh, right. That kind of fun stuff. I thought you were going to say you got up at 5 a.m. so you could go get in the line at Walmart and beat up, beat all the crowds. <laughs> no, I only tried. I only tried to do that crazy Black Friday stuff once, and I underestimated how into it people were. So, like, I showed up at a Best Buy, like that, like I could just show up and like get in the door, and I saw that there was like a line. This is years ago, and I saw that there was a line around the building, and I was like, no, this, this isn't for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went right back home. Oh, I, I, I okay. So you didn't try and wait in the line and try and get in. No, I was like you shocked. Just drove by. Yeah. I was I was very uneducated about the the whole process. <laughs> well, well, good. Well, um, well, Yvonne, today we have a, a, a fantastic uh, guest today, and I'm glad that he was able to make time to join us on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and and uh, hope none of us had too much to eat on Thanksgiving, and we're all uh, lively in a in a awake for this uh, interview of this really, uh, really fantastic case with, with just all kinds of uh, side stories and, um, and interesting details, which we'll get into. But I want to go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, our guest is Craig McClellan. Uh, Craig is a, a partner at the McClellan Law Firm in San Diego, California. Uh, Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. But I think maybe I misunderstood this Black Friday thing. I thought I was to get a flat screen TV for appearing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 we do try to send out a small, small gift, but I'm sorry, it won't be a flat screen. But that's um, that's actually what Steve was supposed to pick up today, right, right. before recording. So exactly. it's his fault. Five a.m. That's right. That's right. Hey, Craig, Craig, I should tell everybody who's listening that uh, if they want to look you up or look up your law firm, they can go to McClellanLaw.com. That's M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N-Law.com. Well, Craig, let me uh, let me tell everybody uh, about you and uh, about your background. Craig, you've been trying cases for a while. And in fact, the case that we're talking about was tried back in 1983. So uh, this might be the oldest case we've talked about. I know we've talked about uh, one or two others that go, go back, but this, is, uh, this one definitely goes back. But uh, Craig, in your career, uh, you've had more than 130 verdicts and settlements in excess of a million dollars. Uh, you're a fellow at the American College of Trial Advocates. 
You were the president of the American Board of Trial Advocates for San Diego. You're a master in the American Inns of Court. Uh, been named to Best Lawyers in America. You have been named uh, San Diego Lawyer of the Year five times. Uh, you've been named to the top 10 super lawyers uh, for San Diego multiple times. And in 2019, you were ranked the number one lawyer by super lawyers in San Diego and have also been named in the top lawyers uh, in business litigation in San Diego by San Diego Magazine. So uh, definitely a, a, a great career and, uh, and really fascinated to talk to you about this case. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, well, Craig, let's talk a little bit about this case. It's, um, it's, it's one that I uh, hadn't heard of before, but really, um, you know, just has all kinds of interesting uh, uh, facts involved. Um, the name of the case is Garrison versus Porsche AG and Cynthia Files. It was tried out in San Diego, California in 1983. It involved the death of Donald Fresh, who was an aerospace engineer. Uh, who was killed in a, a car crash in 19, May of 1980 in La Jolla, California. And um, the verdict was $2.5 million, which at the time in 1983, if it wasn't the highest wrongful death verdict, it was among the highest uh, wrongful death verdicts in the nation. Um, but basically what happened uh, is that uh, uh, Donald was uh, out in La Jolla, California, visiting uh, his employer uh, for aerospace engineering. And he had gone out with some of, the, um, uh, some of his co-employees who worked in the La Jolla office. Uh, afterwards, there had been a few drinks. Uh, and he was uh, a passenger in a 1979 Porsche 930 Turbo that Cynthia Files was driving. Uh, Cynthia was driving uh, down, I think, I had it written down somewhere, Prospect Drive, I think it was. And, um, and basically, uh, the, you know, from depending on who you talk to in the case, was driving uh, too fast, lost control, and uh, going around a curve. And, um, and uh, she wasn't, uh, she was hurt some, but not too badly. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Fresh was killed in this collision, and um, there was a number of claims in, in the case that were pursued against Porsche AG. But basically, uh, as I understood it, Craig, that, um, that that the design of the vehicle. Well, first of all, it was that this this vehicle, which was essentially a race car in disguise. Um, I think the um, this was the production vehicle of a race car that Porsche had actually um, raced in Le Mans. And, um, uh, but basically caused it to, uh, over accelerate, oversteer, and then because of a faulty brake pedal, uh, that actually trapped the gas pedal while trying to make a turn and trying to hit the brakes, uh, caused, uh, Cynthia file to lose control and to, um, and to cause the death of Mr. Fresh. And one of the findings that the jury made uh, was that the vehicle was too dangerous for the average customer without warning and instruction. So just from uh, that standpoint, uh, you know, that you have this sports car uh, that the jury found was just just too dangerous if you don't give proper warning and instruction is um, got to be one of the first of its kind. And you still don't hear of many cases like that today. Well, I think it was the, the one and only case of its kind so far. Um, although the way things are going now, um, 
who knows? Uh, hopefully not, but before long we could see another one. Yeah, and you know, you 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 now see, and 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 this obviously didn't happen back then with the Porsche 930, but you now see if you buy a high-end vehicle like this, like a, a, one of the uh, Porsches, or uh, maybe even like a BMW M5 or something, vehicles like that that are uh, got very powerful engines and are very fast. That the manufacturers now do offer uh, many times some sort of instruction level or some sort of driving courses for how to drive vehicles like that. And I think in big part was due to uh, this case. Well, I, I think that's true. And um, I know I've been contacted by uh, designers uh, and owners of racetracks uh, because we had another Porsche case uh, later on that occurred at a racetrack um, in terms of, um, you know, vehicle handling and, and stability issues and how racetrack design affects that and so on. So I think it, one good outcome of the case is that it has uh, safety issues of several different kinds in mind. But I, I, let me say on the power issue, the thing about this car, I mean, we've got cars now that, that are faster. Um, the thing about this car was that it had this rear engine and big turbocharger the turbocharger had a lag in it. So let's say you're accelerating away from a stop or something and you're pressing the gas and then there's a pause of a second or two and then it takes off. So it had that turbo lag and self-acceleration which resulted in what anybody would do, you take your foot off the gas, it's going too fast. If you're in a curve when that happens, then the big rear engine comes into play and the weight, when you take your foot off the gas, goes forward in the car. The rear end lifts up and slides out in the direction of the turn, and you're in trouble, big trouble. And then because it oversteers, you have to countersteer, and most people don't know to do that or how to do it. Yeah. Right? Craig, can you describe um, for our listeners and also for me to make sure I understand it, what um, what oversteering means? What what how that changes how a car handles? Well, there's engineering terms of slip angles and so on as to what it means, but the best way to describe it, I think, is if you're driving home today and you go around a corner and you let loose on the steering wheel, the steering wheel is gonna come back in your hand. It's gonna take out the turn. So you let loose and it rotates back. That's understeer, and that's basically how every car sold in this country is designed to handle. If you have an oversteering car, do the same thing. You take that, turn that corner, and you let loose on the steering wheel. It keeps going. It keeps going into the turn. Wow. So you have to put in steer to take it out. That's called countersteering. Wow. And is, it, is, that, is that something that happens just because of some sort of physics that are going on in the car or is there some sort of performance race sporty driving reason for that that's a technical term right sporty <laughs> <driving>. <laughs> well there's it's the it's the way the car is set up you have if you're racing for instance your formula cars most of them are understeering and it's if you know what you're doing it can be a lot of fun to drive a drive an understeering i mean an oversteering car uh, you basically can let the rear end steer the car, but uh, 
but not a streetcar. A streetcar shouldn't be set up like that. Uh, it comes as a, as a surprise to most people. Yeah, and I think well, you know one thing you should uh, when you talk about this counter steering. If you ever watch, uh, you know, uh, a professional driver or a race car driver when their back end breaks loose or starts to slide, and you if you look at their front tires, they're actually pointed in the direction of the slide, uh, which is counterintuitive to a lot of people that you would actually steer in the direction that you're sliding uh, but that helps you maintain control but most people don't know to do that and uh, and if you don't then it, that can also cause you to lose control that's right um, well and I, I did want you you know from my standpoint um, Craig in, in reading about this case it, it seemed that there was it, obviously there was a big difference in um, what Porsche was saying happened in the collision and in what uh, the plaintiffs were saying happened in the collision. Um, and, and, you know, I, I kind of brushed over this, didn't talk about it too much, but, but one of the big issues was this brake pedal that when uh, Miss Files uh, started to lose control of the vehicle and hit the brake, that the contention was that due to the design, or not the design, but the faulty manufacture of the brake pedal, uh, that there was, a, a, I think you said, a, a lamination in there uh, that caused the brake pedal to actually bend over and trap the accelerator down so that when she tried to brake, the brake pedal actually depressed the accelerator and caused the car to go faster. Can you talk a little bit about the, the reconstruction side of this and in in, in what you all found in that? You know, if I had had you try in this case, Steve, I could have cut probably 30, 40 pages off of my opening statement. I summarized it so well. Uh, well, the brake, the brake pedal thing came about in a funny way. We had not initially um, focused on the brake pedal. Uh, I came into the case uh, after it was ongoing. But when we took the deposition of Cynthia Files, the driver, she said she had hit the brakes. And there weren't any evidence of brake application on the roadway. There weren't any brake skid marks. Um, and so we started looking into it and found out that the pedal had been bent down onto the gas pedal. The brake pedal had been bent down onto the gas pedal. And then when we had a metallurgist look at the brake pedal, there was a uh, lamination found in the metal which is not something you want to have. It's a void in the metal. And that weakened the brake stem, the metal, which with what we call translational force, in other words, she hits it maybe a little bit off center on the top at a bit of an angle with such force because she's in panic mode that it bent that pedal right over. It took about 18 pounds is all it took to bend it. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, 
reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search, and I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means, and they'll tell you what all of these things do, and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Wow. That, I mean, just hearing that just 18 pounds to bend a brake pedal such that it traps your accelerator, I mean, is shocking. It really is. And, and here's the odd thing. We, um, we, Porsche wanted to examine the brake pedal in Germany, in Bysock, where its factory was. Um, and because you've, you've read about the test report and so on that was altered, which we didn't know about at the time, but we, we certainly didn't want to let that brake pedal go over to Germany right. uh, unattended and leave it at the Porsche factory for whatever they were going to do with it. So we when after a court hearing and so on, we ended up with it going to Germany with our private investigator chained to his arm. <laughs> oh, man. We, we had a lot going on in this case. That's why I thought it'd be a great case for this. Uh, right. <laughs> it is so great. There's so much that, that we are going to get to in terms of, of the things that happened in this case and how interesting it was. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to move away from the brake pedals, especially because you all were able to inspect some of some others and find a similar defect. But I, I want to back up for a second because when you got involved in this case and knowing there was drinking involved, no, because I, you know, I, I hear that the, that there's no marks for braking and I could easily, I think, think of that as a being a really bad thing. How did you, you know, looking at this case and knowing um, that at least it was going to be defended on driver error, that there was alcohol involved, that, um, she was traveling at high speeds. What made you say, I'm, you know, I'm going to dig into this. I want to see what's going on here. Well, I, I think when we, first of all, when we did some research into the vehicle itself and we hired Paul O'Shea, who was an international uh, race car driver, former Porsche team race car driver, um, and I think three-time world champion driver, um, who gave us more or less the lowdown on the car and its characteristic to oversteer and so on and so forth. So that's where we were going. And then when she said she was braking, and then we had another, we found another witness who said that the acceleration increased after it decreased, it then increased. And that was inconsistent with her testimony of hitting the brakes. And so that's when we started there's got to be more to this. And we got into it. Yeah, I mean, and, and Yvonne's exactly right. Uh, you know, I mean, when you just look at this case from the outside and you hear, and I think that the speeds that they that the police had put on the vehicle at the time of the collision was 62.5 miles an hour, uh, no brake marks. Uh, they She had admitted to drinking. I think you, uh, in your opening said she had admitted to having two to three wine spritzers. Um, you know, just is a, I mean, is a lot to overcome, um, right from the beginning. Um, and, and even with the, the, the parts about what happened to the brake pedal, it's still one of those things that, you know, as, as, uh, 
you know, lawyer that's handled, you know, a number of product liability cases, it's one of those, uh, it's some of those facts that, that really make you take a second and even third thought about whether or not uh, it's a, it's a um, case to be involved in. How did you, so when you were doing jury selection, how did you address those issues which you knew were going to be, you know, problematic, um, uh, you know, with the jury? Uh, well, we had a lot of problematic issues, and um, and I, I don't, uh, as I sit here now, I don't recall specifically what what I asked, but I'm sure that I would have covered the right to know uh, of a dangerous of a danger in a vehicle that's not apparent. Um, I would have covered. Um, you know, how vehicles, uh, I would have certainly covered the driving experience of people. And I, and I knew that all, none of our jurors would be familiar with an oversteering vehicle. It would be new to all of them. And if presented correctly, what this vehicle does would be a surprise to all of them. And they'd be scared when they heard about it. This is a vehicle that in first gear could break every speed limit in the country. Um, and, and when they hear that it's got a turbocharger that kicks in and accelerates the vehicle without any further pressing on the gas pedal, that's kind of scary stuff to a lot of people. Definitely. I mean, it was reading your opening and your closing. It was, that was totally new information to me right now, <laughs> like mm -hmm. let alone in 1983, but I had no idea. I I really just thought that it was just a faster car <laughs> and it went, it was able, it sped up faster and then it went really fast. <laughs> and that's, that was really it. I, I found the other things that could happen that this car could do really shocking. And I thought it was really powerful the way you presented it in terms of consumers having a right to be informed about that. And I think the jurors in, in jury selection all agreed with that. Um, I think they um, recognized during the case the danger of the vehicle and that we weren't just talking. I tried to make it clear we weren't just talking about a fast vehicle. Um, you know, the cars can look like they go fast. Uh, they can advertise the horsepower. You know that they can go fast. It's not just speed, it's, it's speed combined with these other dangers. Right, and, and talk a little bit about your, you, you mentioned him already, but Paul O'Shea, this race car driver, I mean, wh what was his testimony to the jury about how you drive like this and what kind of training or expertise you had to drive a car like this? Well, what we did is we got another 930 Turbo and Paul drove it at the Orange County Raceway at that time and, uh, and did some filmed uh, vehicle testing and he testified to the jury that this vehicle in the hands of a skilled race car driver was a terrific vehicle it could do things that uh, it was designed to do but it had to have somebody behind the wheel that knew how to do them and if not uh, if, if the driver didn't know for instance about the oversteering characteristics then it's like flying an airplane. I think he testified that, you know, you, you believe that if you pull back on the yoke, that the plane goes up. And if you push in, it goes down. 
Well, this would be like flying an airplane, and if you pull back, it goes down. If you push in, it goes up. It's just the opposite of what you're used to doing. Wow. Uh, related to that, I saw that um, from your closing that it looked like um, that you used a, a human factors expert, Dr. Berg, I think. And I was curious, um, well, both, I think for our listeners, if you could explain a little bit about human factors and what they can talk about, but also, I don't really know the historical context, but that has to be, that had to be kind of, there couldn't be that many people using human factors back then, right? That's correct. There weren't. Um, we used, we, a human factors expert is a, a one that talks about the interaction between man and machine. And we used the human factors expert for two purposes in that case. One, to talk about the human reactions to certain inputs, uh, such as when you find yourself going too fast, everybody, the first thing anybody does is they want to take off speed, which means foot off the gas, and if that's not enough, hit the brake also. That's a typical human reaction when they're using a machine that's going too fast. Uh, the other thing we, we wanted to use them for was to talk about the brake application and what, how it could be applied in her situation at what angle and uh, what pressure and so on. Got it, got it. Well, and, and tell me, you know, and we'll get into this. I mean, I know you, you had some documents in this case that had been altered and, and, and things like that. And I, I definitely want to talk about that. But I mean, I guess when you, um, you know, come into a, a courtroom where you, you've got this sort of renowned, you know, company of Porsche, um, you know, and, and they, they had this great reputation as a car company. I mean, how, how did they come across and what was their sort of take on this? Just that she was just drinking and was just driving too fast? That, that was definitely their take, that she was, uh, you know, she'd been drinking, was probably drunk, and just stepped on it to show off and lost control. Um, but to answer your question, how they were, I would say that they were arrogant. Right. That's their defense. As far as they were concerned, Porsche didn't make defective cars, period. End of case. Right, and, and to suggest otherwise, uh, you know, is just ludicrous, I assume. Is, is ridiculous, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about some of the things that you were able to uncover in this case. And, and you know, one of the, I guess, big things that happened was that there was a, a document where it, it sounded, this is the way I saw it, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it sounded like in the original German document talking about the, uh, the Porsche 930, that when it referred to its handling, it used a German word that, that uh, translated to poisonous and, uh, and then referred to it as, um, you know, as having this issue with oversteer. And then when it, I, I guess when, when Porsche presented it, uh, they had changed the word poisonous to that the handling was normal and that instead of having oversteer, it was in fact understeer. So talk a little bit about that document and how well, this, that is a, this is a wild story. This is, uh, this is really fun, at least for me to talk about. Right, it. right. Yeah. Very unusual. But so here's what happened. We before trial in term in the course of discovery, we learned that Porsche does what's called a function test on all its vehicles, 
which is a test of their driving performance. They wouldn't provide us with that test for this vehicle, so we had to make a motion, and the court ordered them to provide a test, which they then provided, and it had three areas where it talked about the things we were interested in. It had a turn-in test where the vehicle goes around the circle and turns in, and then it had other turning tests. And in the report, it said the handling had to be characterized as normal, and the car understeered, and in two places it said it understeered. Well, Paul O'Shea, our driving expert, said, well, that's just not possible. That's not right. That's not how this car handles. But we figured we were going to have to go in and convince the jury that the car handled differently than the Porsche test uh, said it did. Then in the course of the trial, we're in trial, and I come into my office one day after court, and my secretary says, well, this came in the mail today. And I look at it, and it looks like just another copy of the function test we already got, but there's a little note, all in caps, typed on it, and it said, Mr. McClellan, we found this treatise on a recent flight to Stuttgart. Your name was on an accompanying memo. And it wasn't signed. There was no name or anything on this. So I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe one of the people involved in the case had the test report with them and left it on the plane or something. I didn't really think much of it, but I told her to go ahead and send it to our interpreter, our translators, and make sure it was the same. Well, it came back and where it said that in the two places that it understeered, in the one they gave us, this one said it oversteered, and where it said the handling had to be characterized as normal, this one said was had to be characterized as poisonous and added a comment that it would be good for their customers if they could make it, if they could change it. Those things weren't in the one they gave us. So I thought maybe this is a setup. <laughs> right. Because they were so arrogant in their defense, I thought, well, maybe they're doing this. They want me to come in and wave this around and then show that it's a fraud or something like that. So we got the head of the crime lab in Santa Clara County to fly down the same, same day. And he and I spent all night. He brought all his tools and equipment and microscopes and everything else. And then he determined that the one I had received in the mail was a true copy of the original and the other one had been altered. And it was based on all kinds of measurements and stuff because looking at the report, there's no way you could tell that anything had been altered. So what had happened, I can tell you how it came about, which we learned later in trial, is that Kurt Meyer, who was head of Porsche in the United States, after they had to produce that report and after the trial started, he flew back to Germany. He went into the test department, got the report. It's locked up in the archives, supposedly with a guard. And he called in um, a man named Kusmal, who had been the author of the report that had signed it, who was no longer in the test department. He told him he wanted it changed because it wasn't accurate. And so they went through it and these changes were made. We know later because the court ordered the original produced 
into court within 24 hours after all this came out. So they made the changes with whiteout. They did it very excellently. Uh, used the same, they found the same old type, so they could use the same type so you couldn't tell. And they had the same guy signing it, who wasn't even in the test report, in the test department anymore. And so that's how the changes came about actually during the trial. Um, I mean, right after it started and right before they produced the report. It's so, it is so crazy. It's crazy. First of all, I didn't realize that you had gotten that sort of the, the actual original anonymously sent to you during trial, which had to be insane. But it's also reading about like what you had to do to go to figure it all out and thinking about the fact that you had to you know, it's not like now where you could look at the metadata of a file or where you could email it to a translator and have it quickly translated. I mean, all of that must have just is, would had to have been a totally different process for you to figure out how it had been altered, the authentic, the authentication. And it, it sounded like they even like, they found the same pen or the same ink or something to make it look. They did it. I mean, it's amazing. When you, when the original one came to trial, we had the, the uh, criminal lab expert from Santa Clara look at it and go on the stand and, and point out to the jury how they had done it. But it was, it was just really an amazing job. Clear to see when you could see through the paper, but not when you're getting the Xerox. Right. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, how they explained the, the two different versions of the documents <laughs> at trial, but then um, also I really, I don't know if you remember it, but the, this, the analogy you use you used in your closing about the two guys in a boat in in the fog. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it's only been what thirty six years. <laughs> right, I can't right, believe exactly. I can't believe this, Craig. <laughs> um, well, I I can only say that watching them once it came out that there was these two different versions, and then that they had to address that for you to watch them how they were going to explain that to the jury just had to be one of just sheer joy as a, uh, as, as a lawyer on the other side. Well, I'll tell you, the, the big day in court was the day that we called Kurt Meyer to the stand after we knew about the report, but they didn't know we knew about it. And so it was going to come out. And so the courtroom was full. And as soon as I got to it, um, after he had verified that the one that they had given us, oh yeah, that's a true and correct copy. That's how it was tested. That's an accurate report. Blah blah blah. It understeers this, that, and the other thing. Um, and then pulled out the other report, and you should have seen the look on his face. <laughs> and uh, so after it comes out, um, he disappears. Never came back to trial. Never came back to court. And. Uh, and, and so there's a whole nother story in what we had to do then to get the rest of this testimony in by using somebody else uh, to read the testimony back, which created a lot of uh, final argument fodder. <laughs> well, tell us the story, because I want to hear what you, what you had to do to get it in. Well, so what we did is uh, we couldn't get him back to court. Nick said, well, he's, you know, he's, he's sick, he, he can't come around. We couldn't find him. He was gone somewhere. And uh, we couldn't subpoena him. They didn't provide any evidence that he was sick. 
But uh, so we, we had to go ahead and use his deposition testimony. And so I had, I auditioned a few people to read back the testimony, found the right person, and he read the testimony back in with the umph, I think, that Meyer had when he made it. And so uh, during the final Porsche's final argument, their lawyer said, well, we made Kurt Meyer look like Hitler. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what's interesting about that is that's what they said, not what we said. Right. And one of their complaints about the amount of the verdict was that the argument was inflammatory. And they said that we had argued that Kurt Meyer was like Hitler. And so it was later pointed out it was actually their argument. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Well, you're, I, like, I feel like people are going to wonder now. And so, Craig, you can stop me at any time. But the, what you said in your closing about the boat was, you know, getting to their credibility about changing this report. And you talked about um, a criminal defense lawyer where there were two guys. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to totally oh, I'm, You're talking about the, the without the, body the death without yeah. the body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Will you yeah. will you tell that quick that story? I know you're gonna do a better job than me because I already got stuck, but I, I really loved it. I thought it was really useful. Well what what it was is Kurt Meyer was sitting in the back of the courtroom when this came out about the phony the the, the test report had been altered. And he got up and left quickly and he had been he had been there the whole time until then so i told the jury a story about uh a lawyer who uh, uh, was defending a man accused of murder but they hadn't found a body there was no body and so the whole case was put on on circumstantial evidence and without a dead body and in final argument the defense lawyer got up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, this whole case has been a fraud. So-and-so was never killed. There was no murder. And if you look over at the door of the courtroom now, you're going to see so-and-so come walking in right now. Take a look. And everybody looked at the door. Nothing happened. And then the lawyer said, well, see, you all looked at the door and that means you had reasonable doubt and that means they hadn't, haven't proven their case and you should find my client not guilty. Jury was out for 10 minutes, came back with a guilty verdict. So the lawyer went up to the jury afterwards and he said, wait, I don't understand. He said, you, you all looked at the door. How could you find him guilty? And they said, uh, well, Mr. Attorney, we all did look at the door but we also looked at your client and he wasn't looking at the door. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> um, well, and it, I think it's just a great point of, uh, of, of how credibility in, in every case is just so important. And I mean, I can't imagine how Portia uh, at that point in the trial tried to, uh, you know, claw back their credibility or, or get back some semblance of being credible in front of the jury. I mean, what it, it's, it, it seemed like that was probably a huge turning point in the trial, but uh, you, you tell us. Well, definitely because 
you know, you always want to try the lie. Right. And, uh, and so that became, no matter what they said, we could always go back to the original test report because it impeached them. Um, but they, what they did is they, they flew in a 930 turbo. They took over a hotel in La Jolla. They brought in all their technical people. They brought, uh, flew a, the, the vehicle over, all the sophisticated equipment. They brought in two race car drivers. They gave the city an indemnity agreement and blocked off the street in La Jolla where this happened. And then after fitting the vehicle, which was, by the way, armed guards around it the whole time it was there, they fitted it with all these accelerometers and other equipment. And then they had the race car drive. They brought in a Hollywood film crew, put them across the street. And then they had the race car drivers drive the, the Porsche 9 Turbo, the same path she was driving, to prove that it could be driven through that, those turns at the speed she was going without losing control. So what we did, we didn't even know this was happening. We didn't even know about any of this, except there was a police officer who was off duty, saw a crowd gathering around. So he was an amateur photographer. He went, he saw what was going on. He didn't know anything about the case at the time. He took a lot of pictures. Later, he heard about the case and contacted us and we got the pictures and they showed scuff marks all over the street and we took those scuff marks and then we took the film we we subpoenaed the film from the hollywood film crew and for one of the first times ever i think we digitized it we had it digitized once we digitized it we could move in literally move in the window and you could see how the driver was just wrestling with the steering wheel to keep the vehicle on the road and knew what he was doing very very good but but just a multitude of quick steering inputs and brake at the same time so we could then fit those steering movements with movements of the vehicle leaving scuff marks on the street that were identified in the police photographer photographs but to answer your question so they took that driving through it the same speech she did and put it with their argument that the test report that, that we had uh, was really on a uh, uh, not a production vehicle, a pre-production vehicle, and therefore it wasn't accurate. So of course they leave it in their archives under lock and keys for years, never do another one that's accurate during the trial of this case. It didn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and it, it and it just seems like that you know for them to bring in professional drivers who you know make it through there, I'm, I'm not sure how that really helps their case when your case is that you know for the average driver who hasn't been given warning hasn't been given instruction they're not going to be able to handle it through there. I mean it 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 almost proves your point. Exactly, exactly. And here's another funny thing. So they take it up. They go up to another racetrack up in uh, Northern California and decide to run it through some tests that they're going to film. But before they film, Steve Wamey, the lawyer, the main lawyer for, for Porsche, decides that he wants to drive it because he figures it's now there's nothing dangerous about this vehicle. He can do this. So he gets in, takes off, 
loses it and crashes into the rubber <laughs> barrels. Rear end comes out, just like we said, the whole thing, just like we said. I tried like crazy to get that into evidence at trial. Judge wouldn't let me. <laughs> How did you find out that it had happened at all? Well, we had, uh, as I recall, somebody was there watching. And, and so we heard about it from, the, from some observer that was there. This word about this case was getting around pretty, we got contacted by a lot of people. And people that had seen this happen uh, said the lawyer dro drove it. Now they had a bunch of lawyers, we didn't know which one, but uh, right. we then found out which one. And from then on in trial, I called him Wheels Wamey. <laughs> in front of the jury? Not in front of the jury. <laughs> okay. That's he didn't like it. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, with all this, these things that were sort of, that you were finding out in trial, including this document issue, um, you know, did you ask for sanctions? Were there any sort of sanctions against the defense? Or at that point, are you just focused on trial and just working with, with what you get as it's unfolding? Well, I tried to think of everything. You know, it's a wrongful death case, and in California, uh, you can't get punitive damages. And if you have a survival cause of action, which I think we did, meaning even if he survived for 10, 15, 20 seconds, or maybe a little longer than that, a minute or two, uh, you could possibly get punitive damages. But the case law is you can't get punitive damages for malicious defense. There's no claim for malicious defense. Uh, so we had looked at that angle. We looked at uh, sanctions, but the court, uh, you know, felt that it was going to call the, the original report over from the locked archives in Germany, which they resisted like crazy. And he felt that was punishment enough, I guess. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not really clear on that, but mm -hmm. that's what he did. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, you know, because it comes up a lot in, in products cases, but so you, Cynthia Files was also a defendant in your case. And um, I, I don't think it came into evidence, but she had already been convicted or, or had pled to 
misdemeanor manslaughter. Um, and I'm just wondering how, uh, first of all, did she testify in front of the jury? And she must have come across as fairly credible in front of the jury because as the, as the verdict form shows, they didn't put any fault on her uh, and put it all on, on Portia. Yes, um, and, and you remember one of the complaints was that we had, a, we had settled with her. Right. Um, and the jury wasn't told about the settlement Obviously, from our point, if they hear there's a settlement, well, they must have admitted they're guilty. So the jury starts out figuring they admitted their guilt just because there was a settlement. And of course, that's why the other side wants the settlement to come in. But the real reason that settlements usually come into evidence are because supposedly a witness who has settled would be biased. Something I've never really been clear on because I don't think people that settle are ever happy about settling and they're going to alter their testimony to favor those that have settled with them. But that's the theory. So, and I, and I suppose that it could be that as part of the settlement, uh, there could be something to help the party you're settling with. But in any event, so what we did is we said to the court, well, she's already testified. She's already given her deposition testimony. How about we don't get this to the jury of the settlement unless and until she changes her testimony at trial to be more favorable to the plaintiff? Court agreed. She didn't, and so it didn't come in. But I think that in answering your question, Steve, that the, the thing that probably decided that is that the actions she took were the actions anybody would have taken. Mm -hmm. The vehicle gets going too fast, you take your foot off the gas. It doesn't go where you want it to go or stop, you hit the brake. So um, so what she did wasn't anything out of the out of the ordinary. And how did she handle, I mean, did she just sort of say like, you know, yeah, maybe I was driving too fast or or you know, because in, in terms of what before, you know, you have the issues before the defective product gets involved, the, the circumstances leading up to it, did she just sort of own it? Yeah, yeah. I think including the fact that she was drinking. Sorry, go drinking, ahead. Drinking yeah. and, driving, and yeah. driving over the speed limit, I guess. Right. Yeah, she did, uh, she did talk to about the drinking, and she did testify to that. And she did testify, as I recall, that when they were, that, when they were in the vehicle, he, he wanted to have her, you know, see how it would go a little bit. So she stepped on it more than she had intended, but then it took off and that's when she was in trouble. Right. One, one thing I think we forgot to explain is that, um, that, um, um, your client's husband, uh, Mr. Fresh, he had a older uh, Porsche 911 uh, that he was restoring. And that was part of the reason why he wanted to ride in her vehicle, which was a, a basically a brand new uh, Porsche 930 uh, turbo, um, and see how it see how it uh, uh, handled, and that was the the whole reason why they were riding together. Yes, he was kind of a Porsche enthusiast. He was actually, I think, he had his apart and was reassembling it uh, in his garage at home. Um, I, I I wanted to go back one second about this, you know, issue. You know, they I it. One of the things that you sent us to re to review was a uh, an article that was written in um, I can't remember the name of the magazine Auto, Auto Week. Week 
yeah, Auto Week magazine. And, and in there, they, they referred to the settlement agreement with Cynthia Files as a Mary Carter agreement, which, you know, I seemed like that was a bit of an overstatement, but, uh, but basically that, that she had somehow uh, agreed to be favorable for you and that there was going to be some compensation for her because I think what the, what the agreement might have had in it was that um, um, they, she was going to have the right to uh, indemnify against Portia if she was found to not have fault or something. So they tried to claim that this was a Mary Carter agreement. Um, it, t- talk about that a little bit and how that played out. Okay, let me let me first for maybe some of your listeners that don't know what Mary Carter agreement is. There's a an old case I think out of Florida against the Mary Carter Paint Company that was the first that uh, established an agreement where a payment is made by a defendant to settle and they either stay in the case afterwards or they don't. And then the recovery by the plaintiff is used at least in part to pay back that defendant either up to a certain point or totally, uh, depending on how the agreement is structured. This was a little bit different than that. There was no payback provision. She only had 100000 of insurance. She wasn't going to get any of that back, no matter what we co- recovered from, from Portia. But her insurance company had a right to indemnity from Portia if it was found that the vehicle was the fault and not her. And so it had a right to get its 100000 back to be subrogated to her right to do so. So that's the reason she stayed in the case um, and wasn't uh, going to get any money back for it. Yeah, I that whole the that article and what's it called again? Auto Weekly Auto or Week, yeah. oh my gosh, was, Week, yeah. was, I, I'm interested to, to hear what you thought about that article, Craig, when it when it came out because it's definitely um, seems a little biased in favor of the car industry. Yes, and, and see, most, um, most industry publications uh, rely on uh, Porsche and similar manufacturers to provide them cars for testing, uh, to pay for a lot of advertising. Uh, they get multiple, multiple copies of the magazines and so on and so forth. Uh, so most of these publications are beholden to the manufacturers. This is one of them. The article had a definite slant to it. Not unexpected, right? but, you know, kind of fun to see. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was fun to read. And I think the thing is, is whatever kind of, you know, sort of bias or slant it had to it, it still, I thought it, it did a good job of kind of summarizing the things that had happened. And there's only so much of a slant you can put on the fact that there were two uh there was like a forged you know testing document (laughs) right right. that's right well it's funny you mentioned about the advertising because i I happen to notice that in the article right as the article ends there's an advertisement for uh uh, some rims or something but the the car they show in there is a porsche Uh, well i think in that in that magazine itself with that issue there were a full page at least one full page porsche ad Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then my understanding is it, from that article, and I wanted to hear, hear you talk about it a little bit, is that the, did the judge reduce the verdict uh, afterwards? And then, and then did he make a, I mean, because the jury found 
that Cynthia Files was not at fault, but did he make some sort of finding that she was? Well, he, I, I don't remember whether, yes, he did. And, and so what he did is he reduced the verdict by the 100000 that she had paid. Um, but then he went on, he felt the verdict was excessive, uh, the arguments were inflammatory, and so he reduced ultimately the verdict to, I think it was one million, he took about a million dollars off. And so um, they appealed, Portia appealed anyway, and we cross appealed, and the appellate court reinstated the full two and a half million. Oh, great. Wow. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Well, one other uh, thing I, I just wanted to ask you from, and I don't know if this was a strategy point or, um, or if it's just the way things worked out, but it looked like that, uh, that you were representing the spouse, Martha Garrison, and then that there was another lawyer who was representing the children uh, uh, of Mr. Fresh. And, and I was just wondering, is that something that you decided to do ahead of time in order to you know, uh, give yourselves well, twice the amount of argument type thing or? No, my, um, my client, Martha Garrison had only been, uh, let's see, Donald Fresh had been divorced. The kids were from okay. his prior marriage. I got you. And, um, and so they had, uh, they had their lawyer who actually just said, you know, he was kind enough to let me take the lead and, and he uh, participated as he chose. And um, my client had been married to, to Don Fresh for only a short time, I think only two years or something, um, maybe four, I can't remember. But, but she had lived with him for a little while before they got married. And interestingly enough, the, the jury came back 11 to one. The one against us was the foreman and the foreman told us afterwards he could never vote for somebody who had lived with unmarried with somebody before marriage. Oh, wow. So it wasn't based on the case. It was based on his moral philosophy in that regard. Gosh. I hadn't covered that in. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> maybe I did cover it in jury selection. I don't, I don't know. Well, I certainly covered them maybe living together and he didn't express a, a problem then, but I guess it was. Yeah, yeah. How did it work? Um, and I, I know you weren't in, in, on the case from, from, it sounds like, the very beginning, but how did it work, I mean, in, in early 1980s in terms of you're getting these documents from Germany um, that need to be translated. How, how, did, how did that whole process work? I mean, because now, you know, you can get your PDFs or whatever, you can send them to a translation service. They can turn them into translated PDFs that look almost like the originals. How, how did the process work then and how, how long did it take? Well, the, the longest thing that, I mean, the, the thing that took the most time was finding a qualified German translator who had engineering experience because a lot of these are engineering terms that are used and and terms that normal translators don't run across and aren't familiar with. So we found someone in Los Angeles, as I recall, and then um, uh, documents had to be sent to him. At that time, we didn't have FedEx. Uh, so you had to mail things or courier them. And uh, 
And then they would go through it page by page, word by word, and prepare another transcript with the interpretation. It just, I, I, I'm thinking about that in part, just getting ready for trial and thinking about how much work it already is. <laughs> and then I think about something like this and how much easier it is now than it would have been then. Oh, for sure. To do simple, like, you know, fairly simple projects like that. It, you know, now we can just send it immediately. I, I just, yep. that just kind of boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so many things are different, but so many things are different, but I was thinking this morning, so many things are the same. You know, a lot of things we did in this trial and the way we tried the case and the jury selection and the arguments are, are not much different today. Um, you know, there's stylistic changes and there's certainly technological changes, no question about that, uh, that could have speeded things up. But, uh, but the very basics of presenting a case are not much different now than they were then. You yeah. know, you want to tell a story and uh, and tell the right story. That uh, and as I said earlier, and in this case, try the lie. Right. You know, it's a it, it's that's a great point that you make because I, I remember uh, early in my career I had read uh, Clarence Darrow's um, uh, biography, and in there he would talk about some of his trial strategy. And it was it was really interesting to read how, you know, when he was trying cases back in, I guess, the 1930s or so, I mean, he's he, his strategies and the, the arguments he made were very similar to the arguments you hear of today. And so uh, so you're right. I think, you know, I mean, things change, but then there's a lot of things that stay the same. Yeah. Same with Mo Levine. You know, he had some of the shortest arguments that you'd ever hear and, and some of the greatest and they're still used today. I, I wanted to hit back on with you just uh, just to hear, uh, you know, how it played out at trial. But the the issue of the, the brake pedal bending, um, how I assume. Well, I mean, I know that that Porsche was defending that by saying that that was post or that happened during the collision, that that's, that that's not something that happened pre collision. But I guess I'm wondering how that played out between um between you know in the case between you and Porsche I know you had the evidence on your side speed sped up after it slowed down um you know but the jury found not only did they find that that uh, they hadn't adequately warned or given instruction but they also found that this brake pedal was defective how, how did that all play out well you know it's it, it's interesting because when we got into the brake pedal thing and we ordered I think eight additional brake pedals for testing and at least one of the other ones had a lamination also um which they just i mean no dispute they shouldn't have period right. now one food said didn't make any difference and so on and so forth but it clearly did because of the ease that it took to bend that thing but um but i think that the probably the biggest thing that helped us was the eyewitness testimony that heard the engine uh, accelerate after um, she said she put on the brakes right. and so that together with the position of the brake pedal and the braking of the throttle as a result of the impact from the brake pedal uh, I think kind of sealed the deal for us yeah absolutely um, 
Well, I, I wanted to find out, did you have a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards and what was their take on the, uh, on, on the case and what, what really carried the day? I mean, obviously I'm sure that document played a huge part, but. Well, I, I'm sure it did, but we, we did not get a chance uh, to really do good interviews with the jurors afterwards. Um, one of the things that uh, we were concerned about with the appeals is things that might be said to the jurors might show up in a declaration for new trial and so on and so forth. And as I recall, there were some declarations uh, with declarations from jurors, but nothing that really was it made any difference or was admissible. Craig, one of the things that um, you had mentioned when we were coordinating um, recording this episode and the case we were going to talk about is um, you had mentioned the 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 car accident in which Paul Walker was killed, which I think a lot of people remember hearing, was it was um, was anything about what happened in, in in that wreck similar to what happened here, or is it more this concept of these sort of cars where the consumers aren't really aware of how they perform? Well, you know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that kind of ties in with your last question, Yvonne. And that is the changes between back then and nowadays. And I mentioned technology had been changing. One of the, the great features that we now have on automobiles is called electronic stability control. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I think Porsche calls it Porsche Stability Management, PSM. And the case, first case we had on the uh, Carrera GT, the one I mentioned at the racetrack, involved the absence of PSM electronic stability control on that exotic uh, high-end Porsche flagship vehicle. The one, it was the same vehicle that Paul Walker was driving. Matter of fact, I think the same year. And had it been equipped with electronic stability control, then the Paul Walker accident wouldn't have occurred and the racetrack accident wouldn't have occurred. Because electronic stability control, what it does is it has a continuing uh, monitoring of the steer input, the speed, et cetera, et cetera, and the algorithm tracks your course. And if the vehicle suddenly veers off, it instantly, by applying uh, in milliseconds, braking to different wheels, puts you back on course. It's like the way I've explained it to uh, jury is it's like the auto correction on your computer. If you misspell a word, it corrects it, before, I mean, even quicker than you can see it sometimes. And that's how electronic stability works. So, so now if we had the Porsche case today and if we had that vehicle equipped with PSM, we might have a whole different story. Right. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. Well, um, well, Craig, this has been uh, just a great interview and a, a fascinating case. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners uh, know about this case that we haven't talked about already? Um, you know, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, getting all of the uh, highlights. Uh, it's It was a fascinating case to do. Uh, had so much involved in it. I, I can tell you one other thing about that test report that we got. Um, I argued to the jury that, you know, there was some argument on Porsche's part that we somehow 
broke into their BISOC uh, factory and, and stole it or something, or it's kept under lock and key. They didn't come out and say that, but they kind of implied we got it uh, surreptitiously. And I argued to the jury that it probably came from an employee with a conscience, somebody who right. was involved in the changes, knew that a widow and kids' futures depended on it, and that's how it came about. In a later case, Trent versus Portia, involving the same 930, same factual kind of situation, a lawyer died on the streets of LA going into a post when the rear end came out, same kind of thing. Um, the, the general counsel of Portia came out to California to meet with me and indicated that, by the way, uh, we found out who it was that gave you that report in the Garrison case, and we took care of it. Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I won't forget that. Right. Wow. 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 Yeah, that's pretty an amazing argument to make. I mean, that you, that you would have the ability to break into their uh, factory and, and steal the one document that you somehow knew that they had forged. Um, yeah. That uh, takes a lot of planning and knowledge. Well, and it's such deflection, like the document that you were supposed to get that you didn't get, right. and now it's somehow you did something wrong by having it. <laughs> that's right. Right, right, exactly. Um. Well, that Craig, part, that part hasn't changed that much either. I feel like <laughs> no, you you definitely still see stuff like that. Maybe not to that <laughs> level, but uh, but you you definitely. Uh, I mean, in any products case, I feel like, uh, especially against the auto manufacturers, you have to you plan on filing three four motions to compel just to get the documents that you should have had in the first. And, well, and then there's still one that always shows up like two weeks before trial. Right. Yep. <laughs> Well, I know you know that, Steve, with your Monday versus Ford and right. uh, a couple of other cases that you've had great success on. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But yeah, we definitely, you know, those uh, th those cases, I mean, I, I enjoy products cases, but uh, you know when you're getting into them, they're, they are not easy cases and uh, they're going to take some uh, amount of fighting. But, um, but let me just... That bill, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, uh, well, Craig, this has been just a great interview and we really appreciate your time. I just want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Craig McClellan uh, of the McClellan Law Firm in San Diego, California. You can look up Craig at McClellanLaw.com. That's M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N Law.com. And we've been talking about the Garrison versus Porsche AG case. Uh, a two and a half million dollar wrongful death verdict back in 1983. Uh, just a, a great time talking to you, Craig, and we really appreciate it. Thank you both, and thanks for coming in on Black Friday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank now, you. This was great. Now we're going to get out and do some shopping. No way. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast 
legalpodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.